0: Welcome to the Caris Molecular Minute podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, a large collaborative research network that combines many academic institutions, healthcare systems, and practices, all focused on precision oncology biomarker research with the hope that this research will aid in improving the outcomes of patients with cancer. Today's podcast is dedicated to neuropathology and to pathology. I am hosting Dr. Patricia Pittman, who is currently at Karis. She is one of the pathologists that work with us at Karis. came to us from Duke University, and I've challenged Dr. Pittman to simplify neuropathology to our listeners. So I'm not going to bore you with the details and introductions, except to say that this is a podcast that you are going to be extremely happy that you tuned into. Now, before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Patricia Pittman, I want to make sure that you rate the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, and let me know how I'm doing. You could do so by sending me an email to cnabhan at kerasls.com. You also can check out our website and learn more about Keras Life Sciences and the Precision Oncology Alliance. Without further ado, Dr. Patricia Pittman on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Patricia, Dr. Pittman, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Please let us know just a little bit about you, who you are, and, and really what got you interested in pathology in general first. And how did this evolve into super subspecialty with neuropathology?
1: Sure. Well, thank you, Chatty, for having me. This is such a treat. So I started my, I, I always knew I wanted to be a physician. My grandfather was a neurosurgeon. My dad is a physician. My uncle's a physician. So it's in the blood. And I honed in on neuropathology. So this is probably a story you don't know, Chatty, but my grandpa was a neurosurgeon and he co-founded Barrows here in Phoenix. And when he retired, he trained Dr. Spetzler, Robert Spetzler. And what you probably know is that Robert Spetzler's son is David Spetzler here at Caris. That
0: is a so, fun story. Okay, keep going.
1: <laughs> so in a sort of this roundabout way, I've come back that to work with the Spetzlers, which is really great. And... When I went to med school, I went to med school in the Cayman Islands at a school called St. Matthews. I was there for two years, which was an absolute joy learning the culture and also going to medical school. And then I came back to the States and did my clinicals in Baltimore and then back here in Phoenix. Following that, I went to Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. I did my APCP, so my anatomical pathology and clinical pathology residency there for four years, and then stayed on at Duke for Neuropathology, which is one of the only two-year specialties in pathology. So, two years of clinical at Duke, we were really subspecialized. We had a high volume of brain tumors. So we had a dedicated brain tumor center, we had a dedicated eye center, and then we serviced all the surrounding smaller hospitals in North Carolina. So in those two years, I saw thousands of specimens. And through my neuropathology fellowship, I became acquainted with CARIS and was, was really, really excited to join the CARIS team after fellowship.
0: So neuropathology, when you talk about neuropathology, so you, so you were trained pathologist for, is this like a three or four years?
1: Four-year general pathology. Yep. So you do anatomical and clinical pathology, which includes everything on glass and then everything in the lab, you know, blood draws, COVID confirmation, COVID testing, things like that. That's what pathologists do.
0: And then after that, you spent a year or two in a subspecialty in neuropathology. You know, the reason I ask Patricia is because there are like in medical oncology, for example, sometimes you don't need to spend more years after fellowship to subspecialize. It just happens during fellowship. You just became in lymphoma or leukemia. So when you finish, you end up taking a job as a lymphoma specialist. And I wasn't sure if what you did was additional training in neuropathology or you just migrated and you decided to uh, specialize in it.
1: Yeah, good question. It's a dedicated fellowship. So two years dedicated only to neuropathology. And then after that, you sit for board certification. So I am a board certified neuropathologist, one of, one of only a few hundred in the country. Uh, you know, two years is somewhat limiting after four years of of residency that's a lot to ask for and but it's subspecialized for good reason uh you know the brain is so it's such a sensitive place that you really want your neuropathologist to be very very good because it's very challenging to get another specimen and especially in neuropathology brain pathology you're dealing with people's essence you know you're dealing with their personality so Going back in getting another biopsy can be very challenging, but also very scary for the patient. So, in training for two years, we we're, we're I think most neuropathologists are trained in you know taking it very seriously that this is a, a challenging specimen to get, and so we need to utilize it as best as possible.
0: You know these are very important points. Um, tissue is a very precious material uh, because it's going to obviously help in diagnosing what patients have, but Take me through this. There are lots of classic, whenever you look at these tumors under the microscope, there's an element which is just the morphology or how the cells look like or the tumors look like, and then whatever coloring you decide to do, all of that stuff. And there's beyond that also other things you need to do beyond just how they look like. Let's start by how things look like under the microscope. Uh, are, are is our understanding of the morphology of neuropathologic disorders changing? Um, I, every few years, I hear there's new classification and new that. Is this based on how they look like or more sophisticated than just how they look like?
1: I think the histology of brain tumors over the years has changed minimally. We, you know, a pilocytic astrocytoma still looks like a pilocytic astrocytoma today. And that diagnosis has been around for ages. Same thing with a glioblastoma. But what we're learning is that many of these once classic histology findings have now diagnostic molecular findings as well. So it's an extra added layer of confidence that we can use to diagnose these patients. And similarly, things that we used to think had a very h- distinct histologic finding, like an oligo astro or an astro-oligo, we can now say, okay, that's not actually that. It's not a combo tumor. It's actually one or the other based on the molecular. And I will say that as neuropathology has evolved, some histology is somewhat mm, deceiving, meaning that low-grade gliomas mildly hypercellular brain can come back with a molecular finding that's actually a very high grade lesion and so there's this discordance in that realm as well so these low grade once low grade neoplasms are now being treated like high grade neoplasms based on molecular
0: so i want to try to simplify this a little bit for listeners uh because Mm -hmm. obviously a lot of listeners may not be as um this is a new topic to them. So let's, let's step back a little bit uh, and try to distill what you just said. So number one, when you look at the type of brain tumors that you see as a pathologist, what would be the top five brain tumors that, that you would expect to see coming through, through your office?
1: Sure, glioblastoma is number 1. That's the most common primary brain tumor in adults. That's a high grade lesion with a poor prognosis. Then you have meningiomas are very high up there. That's a dural based lesion. Those are usually low grade. You resect them and the patient does great. And then after that, you know, it's a combination of things depending on the age of the patient. Pilocytic astrocytomas in our young folks. Um, we get a lot of medulloblastomas in our young folks. That's a high grade lesion, bad prognosis most times and then a myriad of things come through. So it really depends on the age of the patient, but most commonly are going to be our glioblastomas and the meningiomas that we see.
0: Okay. And the meningiomas are benign, so they're not cancerous.
1: Well, they're neoplastic. So they are, they're neoplastic in the sense that they are quote, unquote, a tumor, but most of them are low grade in this, sense that they don't metastasize, they can invade into the brain and then they become a little bit higher grade. It Again, meningiomas were sort of a low hanging fruit in neuropathology because they were easily resectable. And for the most part, they didn't come back. But now we're learning that there are these driver mutations in the meningiomas that can portend a poor prognosis and a shorter time frame for reoccurrence. But 90% of the time they are low grade and Essentially right. benign in the sense that they won't come back in the lifetime of the patient.
0: One of the things that, and I'm going to get back into the molecular stuff, but one of the things I try to predict what my listeners are thinking in terms of questions they have in mind. So let's see, maybe somebody out there is thinking like this. But one of the things that I've always admired, but also was a little bit uh, puzzled about is when the pathologists have to make really quick decisions on frozen sections. So, you know, I mean, my pathology colleagues would say I'm on call for frozen, whatever that means. I wanted to explain that to the listeners, but at the same time, oftentimes it means I guess that they have to be in the OR and make a decision really fast. And it made me wonder, I mean, how, this is not, this can't be that accurate. So A, what I wanted to do is explain to us what you mean when you're on call for frozen. Number two, what does it really entail? Take us through what happens when you're doing the frozen section. And lastly, how accurate is this? I mean, if you could do the diagnosis in like 15 minutes, Patricia, why sometimes do I have to wait two weeks?
1: (laughs) That's a really good question. Frozen sections are a combined effort between the pathologist and the operating physician, and they're called intraoperational consultations. So, for neuropath, for brain tumors especially, when the surgeon goes in to do a biopsy, whether a needle core biopsy or a resection, the, phys- the surgeon really wants to make sure that they have the proper tissue. to do a a full workup on. So at the time of frozen section, the question really is, do we have adequate tissue? Do we have the lesion? Do you have lesional tissue? So for instance, if the imaging is showing a high-grade lesion, a ring-enhancing lesion, suspicious for glioblastoma, but when the tissue comes to my scope and I just see benign brain or reactive brain, there has to be a dialogue between me and the surgeon saying, you didn't quite get it. You know, what I'm seeing here doesn't correlate to what you're seeing on imaging. So at that moment it's a really important moment. You know, we were talking earlier about the importance of tissue. You want to make sure that at the time the surgeon's in the brain that he has adequate tissue for testing, whether that be diagnostic tissue or whether it be size wise. You know, if, if he just gets a little needle core biopsy, it may not be enough to, send for molecular, or do all the immunohistochemical stains that need to be done. But what I will say is that where I trained, 90% of the time, we would give a diagnosis, a preliminary diagnosis to the surgeon, whether it be low-grade glioma, high-grade glioma. And surprisingly, those were incredibly accurate because histologically, you can tell the difference between those. You can't give them an exact molecular diagnosis, but you can say, hey, this looks low-grade. And at frozen time, we always have, we have, we have multiple parts that we're using, right? We have the EMR where we see the imaging, we have the patient age location, and we have the surgeon who we're constantly dialoguing with. And that's important because the surgeons are very, very good. You know, they can tell a metastatic lesion from a GBM, just by the texture of the lesion. And so if we're saying it's this, and they're saying, "Mm, it really looks like this that's an important point because we need to discuss that and see if we have enough tissue, if we have accurate tissue. So it's a really, it's a, it's an incredibly important point in surgery for the patient, because the last thing we want to do is go back and have to get more tissue.
0: So now you get the tissue, you make the histologic Mm -hmm. diagnosis. What additional testing do you need to do for brain tumors when it comes to Molecular features, like do, first of all, do you need to in twenty twenty two, and if you do, what are these molecular features that you want to let listeners be on the alert for whenever they are reviewing a brain tumor pathology?
1: Yes, I think so. After we get histology, after we get the H and E, we call it, we will most times do IHCs, immunohistochemical stains something like a GFAP, a fibrillary acidic protein. We sometimes do an Olig-2, a KI-67. The KI-67 tells us how fast the tissue is um, growing. But after that, we can get a pretty good diagnosis from just the IHCs and histology alone. But like you said, the new classification in 2021 for CNS neoplasms really requires that tissue be sent for molecular sequencing exome and transcriptome in many cases, and that allows for a more accurate diagnosis. And also, if the tumor comes back with a targetable mutation, that patient can then get specialized treatment for that targetable mutation. One of the really challenging parts of brain tumors right now is that there's very limited therapeutic options. You have radiation, you have temozolomide, and then you have a handful of trials that Patients can be enrolled in. One of the things I love about Keras is that when the report is released, patients, there are trial, there's trial information attached to those reports for patients and their oncologists to explore.
0: Is it you think like when you do the molecular stuff? Two questions. Number one, is it does it sometimes reverse the diagnosis or the diagnosis is already made? And the molecular information that you're having is giving you additional information to either direct therapy, to help patients get on trials, or to simply be able to have more intelligent conversation with the patient about prognosis and so on. So do you have situations where the molecular features that you've detected reversed even your original diagnosis that you saw under the microscope?
1: It can. Yeah, absolutely. Because with the new CNS... To 2021 classification some things can have overlapping histology and when you get the molecular back it may be that it's a subset or a new entity that has a very specific molecular mutation that then puts it into a new diagnostic category then on the other side your other question yes the molecular can give us a lot of information on prognosis some mutations terp promoter mutation egfr amplification those have poor prognostic outcomes either they're very they can be very very aggressive and also like i said earlier, in the low grade lesions if they have certain mutations like a cdk and 2a homozygous loss then those need to be treated like a grade four because that particular mutation is incredibly aggressive so yes and yes, the molecular, I, I've seen cases here that have come in, say, as a metastatic carcinoma from a pathologist, and the molecular comes back and it's actually a, a full-fledged GBM, a glioblastoma. And sometimes the histology can be very, very challenging. And I think we live in a world, a world now in medicine where oncologists, patients, they really are demanding more information to ensure that they're getting the best treatment.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, Patricia, just uh, I just want to keep focusing on just just for a little bit, just because I think it's so important. So when you think of the biomarkers or the molecular features, which are the ones that you must know. So, if you are a general oncologist listening to this podcast and you're getting a report of your patient from your local pathologist or whatever, what are the I don't know the things that. If you don't have in your report, you pick up the phone and you call your pathologist and say, I need this. What what are these?
1: Absolutely. For infiltrating gliomas, IDH1 and 2 are an absolute must, whether that's by sequencing or by IHC, and then P53 and ATRX. With IDH, P53, and ATRX, you can subdivide patients into either an astrocytoma, wild type, which is from a mutant, which is a huge difference, especially for treatment and a prognosis. And then with that IDH, you can also rule in a small group of oligodendrogliomas. Now, the wild type with an IDH negative is a high grade can be a high grade lesion and should be treated more aggressively than say an IDH mutant or an oligodendroglioma. So yes. IDH, IDH, IDH is the number one thing that oncologists should be looking for.
0: Did you already mention, and some chromosomal deletions, or these are just prognat? Like, what? Tell me about those.
1: Yeah. So, in in neoplasms that don't have an IDH mutation, so they're IDH wild type, we want to look for three real mutations, and this will quantify these tumors to be glioblastoma's grade four, regardless of the histology. So that's EGFR amplification, that's TERP promoter mutation, and then combined seven gain, 10 loss chromosomes. We now provide all that information in our reports, which is really helpful, I think, for the neuro-oncologists. It's easy to read and easy to access. So I am hoping that that's become more user-friendly for our oncologists.
0: You know this is very helpful because you just mentioned there's a you know these couple of these markers that will immediately upgrade the actual tumor. My last question, and you've been very generous with your time. What what is the I know I mean there are a lot of research happening in neuro oncology in neuropathology. As a neuropathologist, as as a physician interested in neuro oncology, what are the things that you are looking forward to scientific advance in the next few years that we should be on the lookout for?
1: My hope for our patients is that we can embark on some new therapeutic options. Like I said earlier, the therapeutic options for our high grade gliomas right now is, so, is very, very limited. And while they still do a good job, I think that advancements in the research hopefully will gain additional therapeutic entities that these patients can explore more readily. And that gives them a better outcome for these terrible, these terrible lesions in the brain.
0: Look, you. this has been very, very helpful. Um, I really appreciate you just uh, highlighting at broad strokes, um, uh, CNS pathology and neuropathology and, and neuro-oncology. Listen, this year, later on in the years, the Society of Neuro-Oncology, I'm going to, listeners know, I'm going to bring you back on the show. Now you can't say no, you're on the spot.
1: <laughs> Let's do it.
0: All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Patricia Pittman. Really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you, Chatty. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate your support and your loyalty to the Karis Molecular Minute podcast. I hope you enjoyed learning about neuropathology, about pathology, and learn a little bit about what Dr. Patricia Pittman is doing. And I want to make sure that you hopefully are able to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. Recommend this show to your friends and colleagues. By doing so, you will do them a favor. Let's face it. Everybody needs to learn about the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, thank you so much for your support, and until next time, take care.